Good morning. My name is Greg Toddick. This morning's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 15. You can read along with me on the screens. Uh, Now would be the time to get out your Bible. Uh, It's also uh, an insert in your bulletin. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 35. I'll be reading from the New American Standard this morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, You were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord appointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon me my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his rope and it tore the, of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. 
Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah. But Samuel, Samuel Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My throat is so sore from yesterday's game. Anybody else? Yeah, we did some screaming. Um, Happy New Year to everyone. Do any of you have any resolutions this year? Do people still do that? Let's hear a couple of them. Marcus. Is that yours or your parents? Yours. You choose that. All right. Can you talk to my kids? And let's hear a couple more resolutions. Okay, don't be negative. That's great. Anything else? All of you have just given up. (laughs) Emmy. Back handsprings. Got it. I have a uh, a sort of a resolution. I'm not sure how I feel about that word. Uh, But the year uh, 2014 ended with me uh, thinking a lot about how others experience me. I think I'm kind of knowing good at who I am, uh, but uh, thinking about how others experience me really takes this sort of thinking to a whole other level. So it goes from self-definition, who I am, to self-awareness, how others experience me. And I want to start with sharing a little bit about this, just to uh, be the first one to sit in the boat. I'm going to invite you all to join me in and uh, to throw us in good company. Uh, Jesus also, he moved from self-definition to self-awareness when he said, I am Uh, all these I am declarations, and then he went on to ask, who do you say that I am? Uh, For me in particular, I've been thinking about how others experience me in the area of love, okay? Uh, Do people experience love in and through me? That's the question I have for myself. Uh, The feedback that I've received, I think my whole adult life, as far as I can remember, uh, I've been thinking about this. It breaks down into five different w- uh, ways that people experience me. I want to share those with you. Okay, number one, uh, people have shared with me that uh, they often feel disconnected from me. 
And I have little self-awareness about this one. I'm not really sure how or why that happens, but it's feedback I've received over the years. Okay, number two, people say uh, often they don't feel enough affirmation from me. Uh, I think I have some thought about this. I think maybe because... uh, I'm gifted and being uh, negative and critical, they tend to not experience. <clears throat> and then number three, uh, they say that sometimes they uh, don't feel there is room for them to express love towards me because I seem too self-sufficient or competent or Peter will figure it out or something. So they often feel like I'm just fine. So they find it hard to love me. Okay? And then number four, they share with me that it feels scary to be my friend sometimes because I'm not somebody who tends to accommodate their feelings or their expectations, but I sort of just do what I'm going to do anyways or say what I'm going to say. So it's a little bit scary for them. And then lastly, they share with me that uh, sometimes they feel vulnerable being a friend to me because they feel like if they got hit by a truck, I would just move on with my life. But if I got hit by a truck, they would be devastated and miss me greatly. Uh, So that feels a little uneven for them. Now, I've been thinking about these things and hearing these things for years. But this year, this round, as 2014 was ending, it resonates a little differently for me. I feel uh, maybe I might have years to hear. And I feel an extra, uh, you know, openness and motivation to think about these things. So here's my uh, New Year's resolution of sorts. It's not to become a more loving person or to fix this, but it's just to grow in understanding about why I am the way I am. Okay, I just want a little more insight into how and why others experience me in this way. <clears throat> and as I got to articulating my uh, resolution, I came to wonder about this whole debate, this age-old debate between nature versus nurture. This picture that you have been looking at behind me uh, is not without reason. It's a picture of a cow that's been bathed and (laughs) blow-dried. Did you know that cows can look like this? Is this nature or nurture? You guys contradicted each other it's because it's yes it is nature and nurture because naturally they have the fur and the hair that they have but naturally they're not blow-dried and uh you know groomed this way but they can be and so this pre-stake represents uh nature and nurture for me i said pre-stake in case you missed that So what is it for you? Is it nature or nurture? Do you think you are the way you are more because of nature or because of nurture? You know, sometimes I wish I could live many lifetimes but have all of the same kids but in different birth order order, so I can figure out what impacts them more, their nature or their birth order. You know, all the different permutations and, and watch that in action. What about for you? What about for your spouse? Do you have hope? Let me ask, do you believe you can change? 
Do you believe your spouse can change? (laughs) Do you believe your mother-in-law can change? Kids, will your parents ever change? (laughs) I think there's a sort of negativity or fatalism on both ends of the debate. If you believe in nature too much, you tend to over-accommodate what is, and uh, you become maybe a victim, and you become passive, become fatalistic, right? Well, what are you going to do? They are the way they are. Does anything ever really change? Or if you're on the other spectrum and you believe in nurture too much, then you are denying a whole swath of reality and you are uh, putting too much effort into changing somebody or yourself. And so you experience way too much pain without sufficient gain. Nature or Nurture. At the end of 2015, will people around me feel more consistently loved by me? Or am I just the way I am? Uh, We have King Saul uh, as the center of our story today. And uh, verse 11 begins with God saying to Samuel that he regrets making Saul king. Now that's a whole other sermon that God Regrets. So we're going to sort of suspend that question uh, for the moment. And we also have Samuel, a prophet of the Lord. In case you get the names confused, it's just God, Saul, and Samuel. Saul's the king. Samuel is the prophet. And Samuel, when he hears that God has regret and disappointment, he gets very upset and he cries all night over what has happened because Samuel also really wanted Saul to be king and he was very attracted and drawn to uh, Saul. And later on in King David's story, we find out that Samuel actually is the one who really wanted Saul. And he's the one who trusted in his own eyes and uh, liked what he saw and he chose Saul. And so Samuel really had a huge part to play in this, we see that God was working with Samuel in choosing uh, this Saul to become king. Okay, so that's the story. That's the crux of the story. In an earlier passage, we learned that Saul was actually a very humble man. Uh, he was um, a, f- a head taller than the tallest, next tallest person in Israel. And he was the best looking man in all of Israel. And yet, despite his uh, physical superiority, he saw himself as small in his eyes. He had a, a smallness with which he viewed himself. And the sort of the nature-nurture question applied to Saul to start is, did Saul become corrupt and disobedient, or was he always that way? Is he just like that? Or did he become like that? Was he, is he a bad apple? Or did he just make mistakes? Did he just have some moments of weakness? Or did he start out as damaged goods? Is something just chemically wrong in his brain? Or is it really choices that he's made, his behavior? And uh, on top of that, didn't God know? What's with the regret? What about Samuel? He was a a prophet of God. Didn't he know? Where did things go wrong? And I think uh, uh, 
we can begin to see where things started going wrong. Verse 17 says this. Uh, Is it not true that though you were small in your own eyes, God made you king? Then why did you not obey God? And this is, I think, a legitimate question. And this is Samuel's question to Saul. Okay, let me reframe it, rephrase it for you. He says, you knew you were nothing. You were small in your own eyes. You knew that the basis of you being chosen king had nothing to do with you. You became king out of obedience to God. Though you didn't think you qualified, you said yes because God invited you. If that's true, if that's really the case, then why didn't you keep on relying on God? It was your smallness and God's bigness. Why then did you stop seeing God as big? Why did you then disobey? And then uh, Saul's response to Samuel is, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared, and I want you to uh, just put a bookmark there. We're going to come back to that. Because I fear the people and listen to their voice. Okay, and that's sort of the whole story that we have. We have a man who started out as small in his own eyes, but by God's grace and by God's choosing, he was anointed king. And then he disobeyed God. And then when confronted about it, he says, I was afraid. And so I listened to the voice of men rather than the voice of of God. Okay, your turn. You play psychologist. Why? Why is Saul the way he is? Is it nature or nurture? Brain or behavior? What is it? Are you a good judge of character? Do you think of yourself as somebody who is good at predicting future performance? If you are, we need some help on the search teams. <laughs> okay. A uh, couple of fun examples, but I think it helps to uh, kind of press into this uh, point a little bit more. Uh, scientists have recently been um, uh, disclosing some research, I think to me fascinating research, uh, that informs us about genetics. And they say that they have used combined And I don't know what this is. I've read the explanations over and over again. It's way above my pay grade. Uh, They combined, for your information, principal component analysis, that's PCA, and the SNpedia to determine the perfect genetic human being. And in the graph, it's right up there. There's a little red dot right in the midst of blue and green dots. And that's the genetically perfect human being. Uh, a person on earth that's the closest to that little red dot up there, genetically speaking, this theoretical human being, is a native Puerto Rican woman. And uh, that's a depiction of what she might look like. That's actually a princess uh, uh, from uh, Puerto Rico, uh, their history. There you go, genetic perfection. But for us, here's the question. How much does being genetically perfect matter? If Saul 
had been closer to genetic perfection, would he still have sacrificed rather than obeyed and disobeyed the voice of the Lord? What do you think? Okay, another example. ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Hotly debated, rising in the number of diagnoses, especially among boys here in the United States. There's a group of growing professionals who feel that ADHD is being way overdiagnosed in the U.S. Uh, the key thinkers in this group are pointing out that Boys with ADHD mostly exist for some reason in the United States and definitely not in France. (laughs) Why? And here's what they say. The U.S. believe that ADHD is primarily a genetic condition, a biological, neurological disorder. And so U.S. doctors, their preferred treatment is also biological psycho. And it's a stimulant of... uh, medications such as Ritalin and Adderall. So they believe it's a brain thing. You're just born that way. It's a chemical thing, and they treat the brain. Okay? The French, however, they believe that ADHD is a condition that has its roots in psychosocial and situational causes. So instead of treating children's focusing and behavior problems with drugs, French doctors prefer to look for the underlying issue that is causing the child distress. Not in the child's brain, but in the child's social context. They choose to treat the underlying social contextual problems. Therapists and the like. And analyzing the families of origin that they come from. Are you French? Are you American? Nature or nurture? Do you think there's a chemical imbalance in the brain of kids that are diagnosed with ADHD. I did some research, and it looks like, yeah, brain chemistry seems to be a thing. And then you do the research, and you ask, are there social and situational stressors that lead to ADHD? And the research says, yeah, it looks like that too. Is the U.S. right, or is it the French? Did King Saul suffer from ADHD? Is that why he kept forgetting what God told him? Maybe he can be diagnosable and his conditions in the DSM-5. I don't know. But as I studied and thought more and more about this question, nature versus nurture, I realized that the reason I care about the nature-nurture debate has nothing to do with the science of it, really. The reason I want to know is I want to know at the core if... I am at fault somehow. I want to know if I'm accountable, if I'm responsible for my own self and life. I want to know if there is such a thing as sin and if there is such a thing as moral absolutes and if I contribute to the sum total of suffering and evil in this world. Is there a place for predisposition? Can I blame somebody else apart from me? Can I just say, you know, I'm just not that way, so back off. Haven't you used this excuse 
when somebody's coming after you to change you, they want you to be better or different. In other words, haven't you been around other people? You may not want to change, but trust me, people want you to change. One of my favorite philosophers, Ravi Zacharias, he says that you take all of life's questions and issues and it distills down to four fundamental questions. And he says the questions are the question of origin. Where do I come from? The question of morality. Is there such a thing as right and wrong? Can we hold people and self accountable for their actions? Or are we just acting out who we are? Can we help it? And then the question of meaning. What is it for? Why? It's the big why question. And then finally, the question of destiny. Where am I going? What's the ultimate purpose? And I really think the nature-nurture debate at its heart has to do with these four fundamental questions. To help us um, really, I think, think deeply and truthfully about this idea of change, I want to give you three things. I want to give you an image, a concept, and an approach. And uh, I want you to know I really ran my life through these ideas and thoughts because this year I do want to see some change in me. And I want to have hope for my marriage And I don't want my kids to just be uh, stuck because that's the level of maturity that they inherited from me and Susie. I want them to go well beyond their nature and nurture. Okay? First, uh, an image. Okay? And it's the image of a river. Saul, uh, the protagonist in our story today, he was a humble man. He saw himself as small. And I think actually, uh, my opinion, he saw himself as much smaller than he actually was. He was uh, overly humble. I think that's part of his issue. Now, this self-perceived smallness was a, I think, a genetic seed that can grow up to be one thing or another. For example, at one point in his life, this smallness of self translated into Saul obeying God. He saw himself as unworthy to be king. And yet, because God was commanding him, he said yes, and he obeyed, and he reluctantly took the crown out of obedience to God. And we can point to his humility as to why he did that. And then later on in his life, this same smallness of self-perception, this humility caused him to be afraid of people and led to his disobedience of God. So here's the thing. Humility can lead to either courage that allows you to obey God or humility can lead to fear which causes you to obey men rather than God. So humility itself is really not a virtue in and of itself. 
It's just a perception of self. And this natural trait can be nurtured either into courage or fear. And this is where the image of a river comes in. This picture you see behind me is the, uh, picture, one of the pictures that are out there uh, of Western Washington last week, just last week. And uh, there were severe uh, rain and flooding. And uh, one of our sister churches, Grace Harbor Covenant Church, it took on significant flooding damage to their church building. Okay, feet of water uh, in their building. Now, a river is a good thing. A river is defined by its banks. But what allows it to either give life or take life depends on what and how much is flowing through it. Okay, when the banks are overflowing, it wreaks havoc. But when there's fresh water flowing at just the right rate, it gives life. And whole civilizations spring up all along a river. But what if the river is poisoned? Then it begins to kill. And I want to suggest to you that you are just like a river with its river banks. You are who you are who you are. Okay, nothing and no one probably will ever change that. But the question then becomes, what flows through that river and how much? You understand? Two, exact, two different people can experience the exact same trauma, but two people, they react differently. One person has this set of issues, another person has these sets of issues. Because even though the same trauma happened, they're genetically different. So different banks are going to overflow in different areas of the river. So you have your specific set of issues in your life. And the question is, what's flowing through that river? Um, uh, One of my favorite Greek words is the Greek word epithumia. It literally means over-desire. The word epi means over, thumia means desire. And I love this word because the Bible has two different translations for it. On the one hand, it's a negative word. And it's the word that's, the Greek word that's often behind the translation for the English word lust. Okay, it's a word that can mean that you strongly desire something to such an extent that you will objectify it and consume it to its detriment and death. Or it can be used positively. Paul uses it, for example, when he speaks of his desire to be with the Lord. He says, I epithumia, to be with the Lord, but for your sakes, I will stay. Right? And so we have this one word, over-desire. Do you have over-desires in your life? these channels through which desire itself is a good thing. God made it. Desires inform who we are and how we do and what we do. Some would even argue that our lives are a functioning of different desires that are in us. And yet if we over-desire the wrong thing, it can wreak havoc in our life. Another way to think about uh, this is Romans 7, 8. 
says this, sin taking opportunity through the law. You hear that? Sin taking opportunity through the law. Here's your nature. When you interact your nature with law, then it becomes sin, which leads to death. But if your nature interacts with the spirit, then it leads to life. It's a theology of provocation. You can be provoked either onto death or onto life, depending on what's flowing through you. Your nature is who you are, your hard wiring. But your nurture will determine what your life looks like. Uh, I have a couple of examples for me. Um, one of my favorite uh, personality profiling uh, instruments is the Enneagram. And the Enneagram has eight different, uh, nine different types. And I test evenly uh, as a type 8 and a type 3. Uh, and a type 8 uh, is a person who has a strong affinity for power. They love power. And it tells me this, the Enneagram, that on my good days, I can use that power to advocate for the helpless and the voiceless. Or on my bad days, I use my power to take advantage of the helpless and the voiceless. Type three is somebody who has an affinity to get things done. They love getting things done. On a good day, I will use my type threeness to help people get things done. On a bad day, I will use people to get things done. What's going to determine whether I'm a good type eight or a good type three? What flows through the river? Okay, next, I want to give you a concept. Uh, this is one of those, you're part of a community church deals. Uh, this is off of Facebook, so it's a public picture. <laughs> uh, that's a picture of Joseph, Brian, Marshall, and Jeff, and little uh, Owen. And uh, they're sitting in a hot tub. I think this is Joseph's house. And uh, I put this picture up there because of their lack of muscle. Okay? <laughs> and the concept that I want to give to you is the concept of a muscle. Okay? And the question is, was it possible for Saul's life to have turned out differently. We know how it turned out, but could it have turned out differently? And I think my answer is yes. And I base that on verse 35. Verse 35 says this, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel was grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. I don't know how you read that, but I read it somewhat at face value, and I understand that at one point in time, in Saul's life, God had great hope for him. God chose Saul. God himself chose Saul to be king over Israel. And at one point, Saul's riverbanks began to overflow. And the parts that didn't overflow had some poison in it. Right? He began to epithumia something, over-desire the approval of men more than the approval of God. And so what happened? He was provoked to disobedience. And when he did that, God genuinely felt regret. 
I think it's a real feeling that God had. I want you to know, God does not feel less than human beings. He actually feels a lot more. We are made in his image, not he in our image. This whole emotional world, it comes from God. And so I think God genuinely felt something over Saul. Therefore, I think God had real hope for Saul. Therefore, I land on the answer, yes. It was possible for Saul's life to have turned out differently. Now, here's what that means for me. It means that responsibility is true. That choice is a thing. I don't know if you want to hear that. But you have a choice. That all of the heavenly creatures are looking upon us to see if we will choose God or not. If we will do right or wrong. If we will bring about God's kingdom or not. I think there's a real reason why scriptures tell us all of creation is waiting and groaning for us to make choices. And I believe God is sincerely, genuinely in this with us. What you do, what you think, it matters. Some of the uh, most interesting relationship science out there, in my opinion, comes from the Gottman Institute uh, with Dr. Gottman. And uh, his claim to fame, uh, notoriety, is that he claims, and I think this is true, I think he proves this, uh, statistically speaking, that with a 94% accuracy, Dr. Gottman and the Institute can predict whether a couple will do one of three things at the end of a six-year period. Okay, and those three things are, one, they will either break up, two, they will stay together but remain unhappy, or three, they will stay together and be happy. I mean, think about that. 94% accuracy. That's pretty incredible science. And he says this. He says that, when he's observing these couples, okay, it basically, what determines whether they will do one of these three things in six years is, comes down to two categories. The couples that display a certain amount of kindness slash generosity will tend to stay together and be happy. And couples that display a certain amount of contempt slash criticism will tend to either break up or stay together but be unhappy. Okay, so it comes down to kindness or contempt. And he says contempt is demonstrated in two primary ways. I'm breaking down whole books for you, so I'm, it's a broad stroke here. There's some more nuance that I'm saying, but you can read that for yourself. Okay, uh, he says contempt expresses itself in two primary ways. One Either eye-rolling, did you know that? Okay, eye-rolling, or what he calls rejection. Okay, I want to give you a little reading about rejection, because it's very interesting. He says this, partners in a relationship make bids for connection. Throughout the day, partners would make requests for connection, what Gottman calls bids. 
For example, say that the husband is a bird enthusiast and notices a goldfinch fly across the yard. He might say to his wife, look at that beautiful bird outside. He's not just commenting on the bird here. He's requesting a response from his wife. He's looking for a sign of interest or support. And he's hoping they'll connect, however momentarily, over the bird. The wife now has a choice. She can respond by either turning towards or turning away from her husband. As Gottman puts it, though the bird bid might seem minor and silly, it can actually reveal a lot about the health of the relationship. The husband thought the bird was important enough to bring it up in conversation, and the question is whether his wife recognizes and respects that. People who turned toward their partners in the study responded by engaging the bidder, showing interest and support in the bid. Those who didn't, those who turned away, would not respond or respond minimally and continue doing whatever they were doing, like watching TV or reading the paper. Sometimes they would respond with overt hostility, saying something like, stop interrupting me, I'm reading. These bidding interactions had profound effects on marital well-being. Couples, okay, this is interesting, couples who had divorced after a six-year follow-up had turned toward bids 33% of the time. So that means 67% of the time there was no response to their spouse's bids for connection. Okay? Only three in 10 of their bids for emotional connection were met with intimacy. The couples who were still together after six years had turned toward bids 87% of the time. That means nine out of 10 times they were meeting their partner's emotional needs. Now, this is a harsh reality check, I think, in my opinion. 87%? Are you kidding me? Aren't you busier than that? And then before you can get too discouraged, he asks this question, is marital outcome then set in stone? Are we predisposed to eye-rolling and seeing what's bad rather than what is good? And he gives me this great hope. He says this, The ability to be kind and generous or the ability to be contempt and critical are not traits that either are or are not, but they exist in everyone. They are more like a muscle. They can be nurtured and made stronger. That's what the research shows, that change is possible. All of you in this room have kindness and generosity genes that can be nurtured to be stronger than your contempt and criticism genes. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13 says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. He made you in his image. And you have the muscle that can be nurtured to make you strong. Not be weak like these guys back here. 
But like this guy, Brian Crow. Okay, last, I want to give you an approach. Okay, and it's a, I want you to take a systemic approach. Okay, verse 22 says this. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Now, this is a really key phrase. To obey is better than sacrifice. Basically, the story is this. God had given the command to Saul to go and destroy all of the Amalekites. We don't know why. Okay, that's, that's a question you can ask Jesus when you see him. Why did you want all of the Amalekites and their things destroyed? Okay, I don't know that. But God gave that mission to Saul. Saul said yes to that mission. And then he went and then he didn't do it. And then he saved all of the best things. Okay, gold articles and the choicest of animals he saved. And when Samuel the prophet confronts Saul about his disobedience, Saul says, oh, no, 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 no. You're misunderstanding the situation. The reason I didn't kill these animals is so that we can sacrifice to the Lord your God. Your God, remember, your God cares about these so-called sacrifices. And Samuel's famous response to Saul is, to obey is better than sacrifice. If you are somebody sitting in church today, and you are, you really need to hear this. What Samuel is saying is this. You would think that making a sacrifice to God and making an obedient act to God are one, one and the same. But Samuel is distinguishing the fact that you can sacrifice but not obey. Isn't that remarkable that you can be coming to church and wear the label Christian and be engaged in spiritual activities? You can be praying. You can be reading the Bible. You can be serving at church. You can be giving money. You can belong to the church. And you can even criticize non-Christians and the culture all you want. And yet, you can be disobedient in your heart. You can feel like, God, I am doing all these things for you. And yet, you are disobeying God. What is at the crux of what God wants from us then? If it's not our morality, if it's not our lifestyle, if it's not our money, what does God want? What do we have to do to get him to favor us? To obey is better than sacrifice. And the answer comes through Yellowstone National Park. I learned about a new phrase a few months ago called rewilding. And uh, I want to read you a little blurb about what that is. Yellowstone National Park had become overrun with deer, which grazed away the vegetation dramatically. For years, biologists suggested a solution, bringing wolves back to the park as the last ones were killed off in 1926. In 1995 to 1997, exactly 41 wolves were finally reintroduced to Yellowstone, and the effects were dramatic. 
The wolves brought the deer population down to a sustainable population. By the way, those are baby wolves in Yellowstone National Park. But more importantly, they radically changed the behavior of the remaining deer. These deer started to move more often and avoid places in the park where they could easily be trapped, which in turn grew thick with vegetation. This allowed birds and beavers to move in, and the beavers built dams, uh, and the beavers' dams became habitats for otters, muskrats, ducks, fish, reptiles, and amphibians. The wolves also killed coyotes, which allowed for more rabbits and mice, which in turn boosted the populations of weasels, hawks, foxes, and badgers. Meanwhile, ravens, bald eagles, and bears fed on the carrion, that's the carcasses, that the wolves left behind. In fact, listen to this, even the river patterns in the park changed. The regenerating vegetation stabilized the river banks, which yielded less to erosion and took on straighter water flow. The wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. Listen, here's what I'm trying to tell you. You, as a human being, are incredibly complex. The scriptures tell us that God creating you in his eternal image made you deeper than any water. And layered on top of that depth is your brokenness, your own sinfulness. You are a fallen creature. And on top of that, you have received wounds and traumas and grief and pain. And not only the sin of others, but you as complex and as deep and as broken and as victimized as you are, you reside in an inexplicably complex system. And on top of all that, you have a long history to understand. Do you understand how intricate and complicated you are? It is no wonder change is so hard to come by, so difficult to execute and hard to believe in. Where do you start? You press one spot here. Ten years later, it comes out the other way. How could you possibly claim to believe that you can change yourself or change somebody else? Are you kidding me? Do you really take the human being so lightly? You are way more complex than Yellowstone National Park. Your ecosystem is way more complicated. Do you know why scientists insisted for years that if you want to change Yellowstone National Park and save it, primarily by saving the river and its erosion, do you know why they insisted on the wolf? It had to be the wolf because the wolf sits alone at the top of the food chain. And I want to suggest to you that you, more than your own wisdom, your nature or your nurture or competence or whatever tools you have in your tool bag for change, you need a wolf in your ecosystem. 
If you, if you want your riverbanks to be restored to its original intent, and you want the waters flowing, and you want the waters to feed life rather than to take life, you need a wolf in your life. Who can be that wolf? Who alone is worthy enough to sit on the throne of your life? It is, in my humble opinion, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can sacrifice all you want, but you cannot obey God apart from the presence of Jesus in your life. And those who love you, who want you to change, have no hope for you unless you have the authority and the lordship of God reigning as supreme Lord in the ecosystem of who you are and where you dwell. Nothing else can have the pervasive effect that you need in your entire complicated system for you to change. Do you sit here and say you are smart and competent enough that you have the nature and the nurture to be able to change? I don't think so. You should have lived long enough by now to know that is a lie. And this is the hope of the Christian faith, that the rightful king of the human being is the son of God and only the son of God. So I want to invite you this year, before you contemplate any real change, to say, Jesus, I have been sacrificing. I've been doing this and doing that, and I had a reason and a rationale for everything, and I've made my best efforts. But you have not been the authority in my life. You have not been the Lord of my life. You have not been sitting at the top of my food chain. It's been me. And until you are broken that way, you cannot change and you cannot have hope. Let me conclude with this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are king, and our knees will either bow today or they will bow tomorrow. And I pray that our knees would bow today to you, Lord King, that you might restore order and harmony and shalom to our lives. And then in these little areas where we look to uh, ourselves and others for hope and change, that you would change us from within, that you would bring systemic change. And you are not like the wolf who sits on a throne to devour, but you die instead. 
and you lay down your life for us. Therefore, God has highly exalted you, and we exalt you today. God, as you give us hope, as you make your presence known in our lives, and as you restore the banks of our river, as you restore the nature and nurture in our lives, we look to you and we declare you king in Jesus' name.